0: Thank Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, we continue going through this chapter, kind of verse by verse. We're down now to verse 13, which brings us into an extended section here, beginning in verse 13 and going through the end of the chapter, where he builds on faith as the means by which justification becomes ours. And so we continue to look at this theme of justification. Um, Here, as we move along and we get into the next chapter, we begin to move more into sanctification. Although there are still portions of chapter 5 that are going to deal with justification, the next section of the book of Romans is going to deal with sanctification, and that is living out our faith. And what God is doing by His Spirit in us to make us more like Christ what I want us to do is begin looking in verse 13 today. I'm not going to read to the end of the chapter, although really the whole uh, the, the, this section goes to the end of the chapter. We're just going to read a portion of this. We're going to go down through verse 17. So follow along with me. We're going to begin in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world didn't come to him through the law, but it came through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith becomes null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God. In whom he believed. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we come before your word this morning. We think about faith. We think about grace. And we think about promise. All in the context of this man whom you foreknew and chose, Abraham... Whom you blessed and in him you blessed all men. Thank you for Abraham. I'm reminded that when our Savior, Lord, when you were on earth and people questioned you and who you were, you turned to them and said, before Abraham was, I am. And Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Father, I can only imagine that Abraham still rejoices in heaven to see his offspring, those who embrace the faith that he once had. Lord, as we study today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to do work in our lives to build faith, to grow us deeper, that we may be rooted and deepened and grounded in love. So that we could attain to the riches of what you have given to us in Christ. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we continue to trace the experience of Abraham. Really through this whole chapter, Abraham is pivotal. And we did look at the beginning of the study in this chapter. We looked just in one study at Abraham. Did an overview of his life. And here you notice again, we continue to build on the experience of Abraham and the Holy Spirit is using his experience as a basis for us to understand the blessed doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. Now, as we already said, just to cover some ground again, just real quickly, this is the imputation chapter of the Bible. We're talking about credited righteousness. And that word credited or counted or imputed appears all through the first verses of this chapter. Maybe you noticed when I read this morning, if you were awake, that a new word is coming to us. We saw the word imputed, credited. Last week we looked at the word blessing. And we talked about a two-fold blessing. And we'll do that again real briefly this morning. But this morning in the verses that we read, there's a new word that is introduced into the text that he repeats several times in the verses that is central to what we talk about today. And it is the word promise. Promise. This is an important word. This is an important concept to us. That God made promise to Abraham. And then to us through Abraham. What does this mean? What are we looking at as we study this? Now, first of all, let's just do a real quick revision, or or not revision, let's just do a real quick review of some of the things that we are seeing in this chapter. There are three things that he enumerates in this chapter that cannot justify you. That you can't get into heaven based upon. The first one is works. And he talked about that in verses 1 to 8. He said, the man who works, what he gets is his due. It's not grace, it's what he is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted to be righteousness. Your works cannot justify you. Now there, think about this for a minute. He's talking about positive good works. Doing good deeds. And what he's saying is, you can never do enough good things to atone for the bad or the evil that you have done. That only makes sense. Just think of it in human terms. If I murdered somebody, and then I said, well, yeah, that was a bad thing to do. So I'm just going to go and I'm going to volunteer at the hospital now. And I'm going to make up for it. would buy that no one would the two aren't related whoever breaks one of the laws or one aspect of the law it says in the book of James is guilty of it all you break the law you're guilty The law brings wrath. The law reveals transgression. The law is not to save. We'll talk about the law in a minute It's not a means of legal righteousness. But here, your positive good works are not going to atone for your sin before God. It can't do it. Second thing. Circumcision. We talked about that last week. Now there, we're jumping back into the Old Testament. and We're talking about Abraham. And he says, Abraham was not justified by his circumcision. No, his justification came prior to his circumcision. Now, we could just take that one and just relate it to ritual. Now, these are three things, if you just think about this for a minute as well. These are three things that the natural man wants to believe will save him. The natural man wants to believe it will save me. It will make me good with God do good works. It's going to make up for the bad that I've done. Or, if I get baptized. Or, whatever ritual you may think of. I take the Lord's table enough times. Or, other rituals. No, religious ritual does not save. We talked about that last week. Ritual does not create faith. It only confirms faith. The third thing. And this is what we look at this week. The third thing that cannot justify you is the law. The law cannot save you. That is not the purpose of the law. When we get to chapter 7 in the book of Romans, he's going to go deeper into this. He introduces it to us here. Where he simply says of the law, it is not the adherence of the law that received the promise. No, if it was, then faith would be null and void. And he goes through this entire argument concerning the law. As a legal system, the law is good. The law was given by God on Mount Sinai. It is not bad. But it is not a means by which you can be saved. By which you can be made right with God. Now he supports this with several arguments. I want you to notice with me in the text. Let's go back in the text. Verse 13 Let's read and think about these verses carefully. The promise that God made to Abraham, we looked at that in the book of Genesis. And it's not only to Abraham, it's also to his offspring. It is a promise that he will be the heir of the world. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. It did not come through the law. In other words, when God met Abraham, told him to leave the land where he was, to go out from Ur the Chaldees and go to a land that I will show you. God did not give Moses the Mosaic law. Or give Abraham the Mosaic law. Okay, he didn't call, We don't call it the Abrahamic law. None of this comes on the basis of law. The law does not come for another 450 years until the time of Moses. That's a long time. And during this period, he is pointing to the faith of Abraham. And so he says... If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null, the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now that does not mean that God does not account sin to someone who doesn't have the law in front of them. Because we've already talked about that with natural law. How the law is written on a man's heart. But he's simply saying to us, where there is no written codification of law, there is no means of holding people accountable to that standard. And so that is why God gives the written standard. So there is a means of defining in very specific terms what transgression looks like. When I sin, it looks like this. It looks like breaking this law of God. That is why it says in First John that sin is the transgression of the law. It is a breaking of the law. Now, he supports this argument that the law cannot justify you by several things. First one is a historical argument. A historical argument. It is not the adherents of the law who received the promise. Who were the adherents of the law? The generation of Moses... That comes out of Exod in, in out of Egypt in the Exodus crosses the Red Sea goes and wanders for forty years and then their children go into the land of what do you call it promise they go into the promised land he says there they are not the ones who receive the promise the ultimate promise. I want to build on that in a few minutes, but I want us to think about the historical reality here. For a time, we're not going to do it, but we could go to Exodus 23. You may want to write that in your notes and do it yourself. But in Exodus chapter 3, verse 20, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. And God says to him, I am taking you to the promised land. And I am going to drive out in front of you the Jebusites, the Hivites, the... Hussai, you know, every other eight that's mentioned who are Canaanite peoples and you are going to obliterate them. He says, you're not going to do it in one battle. It's going to be a lengthy battle because I'm going to, I'm going to try you in the process to see if you will follow me. He says, if you transgress against my law, my angel will judge you. If you listen to my law, my angel will bless you. And then he gives the boundary of the land. He says, this is the land. And he says, go in and take it. You know, as well as I know, that when they get to that moment, the first generation didn't have faith. And that's astounding. Well, really, it's not astounding. We've all been there, done that one, haven't we? God does something great in your life and blesses you. And it's amazing. And it's a miracle. And you're like, oh, God, I can't. Two days later, you wonder even if there is a God, right? It's exactly what the Israelites do. But I want to think about this here. The law, it says here, think of the historical reality of this. The law brought wrath. That's a historical argument. And I want us to think about it in this way. The promise to Abraham was it just to the Jews? It is to who? All his offspring. That's you and I. But during the period of time that we call the law, when God sent the Israelites into the promised land, did they go there to evangelize the lost Canaanite people? No. What did they do? They went there to obliterate them. The law, historically brought wrath. It did not bring blessing to those peoples, to those peoples that inhabited the world. At that point in time, the law was not a means of anybody's justification. The law was a means of judgment. That is the historical reality that he is appealing to there. God did not send Israel into the promised land to evangelize the people that were there. He sent them into the promised land to purge that land of those peoples for his people to live there. The law brought wrath. Now, having said that, he then takes this into the basic purpose of the law. The law is not meant to justify anybody. It's meant to condemn. The law has the very same purpose in your life and mine. When you're confronted with the law and you sin, it obliterates you. It brings wrath. It hovers in your conscience day and night. And it points you to the transgression that you have done. It does not bring justification. It only brings a sense of foreboding, a sense of judgment. That is its intended purpose. He will build on that when we get to chapter 7, as I said. Now, having said that, since that is the case, you cannot be justified by your works. You cannot be justified by ritual. You cannot be justified by the law. We then see in this chapter, justification is by grace alone and through faith alone. Latin terms coming out of the Protestant Reformation, sola gratia and sola fide. Grace alone, faith alone. We put grace before faith. That is intentional. Okay? That is intentional in the way that these things flow to us. For by grace you are saved through faith. Grace precedes. You see this also. It's grace alone, faith alone. Notice what he says in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. And then this word we're going to talk about in just a minute. In order that the promise would rest on grace. And by that, it is guaranteed to all his offspring. Notice those three words. Those are very important words in the text your salvation rests on what grace it rests on that think of a platform think of a foundation and how this building rests upon a foundation sits upon it what he is saying is all of salvation sits upon, it reposes, it rests on God's grace. And then it depends not on your works, it depends on faith. The deciding point then. It's grace. It's all of grace. And the deciding issue is faith. Will you trust? Will you believe? Will you throw yourself completely on the mercy that is yours in Christ? It depends not on what you can do. It depends on what you will believe. And then it's guaranteed. I like that word. It's guaranteed. Don't you hate it when somebody gives you a money back guarantee and then they don't come through on it? God is good to his word. He guarantees. His promise is a guarantee. And it is to all his offspring. To all his offspring. The offspring of Abraham. So, having said that, what you then see is in this chapter, there is a twofold blessing. We talked about that last week. The blessing is, God credits Christ's righteousness to sinful men, and God does not credit... Our sin, your sin, your transgression. Think about the ugliness of your sin. Don't think about the guy sitting down the pew from you or across the way or your neighbor that you really can't stand. Think about your sin. And the blessing that God does not credit your sin, my sin, to my account. He has forgiven it. And then this blessing, and this is where we go this morning. All that was review. Sorry. Is the blessing. In the blessing, God makes a two-part promise. A two-part promise that he guarantees. In fact, we won't take the time to go to this morning, but in Hebrews chapter 6, when God makes this promise, he swears out an oath. So by two unchangeable things. Whereas, it is impossible for God to lie. And God always keeps his word. We have a strong consolation. God makes a promise. There are two things that we see in this text that God promises to Abraham and to his offspring. One is an heir. The second is a home. A home. An heir and the home this is the promise let's consider this this morning let's think about the word promise first that's a special word in the classical greek language different words could be used to convey what we think of as a promise in different ways The word that the Holy Spirit chooses to use when He's talking about a promise here is a word that is used in classical Greek to speak of a promise that is freely offered voluntarily. It is not a mutually entered into agreement. Sometimes we make promises where we make promise to each other and it is a mutually agreed-upon contractual obligation, right? You buy a home. That's a mutually agreed-upon thing. You marry someone. That's not a coerced thing, right? That's a mutually agreed-upon arrangement that is contractually sealed in a promise. That's not this word. This word is more like what happens when somebody writes a will and testament. It is a promise, but it's unilateral. It's one-sided. And it is voluntary, and it's not coerced. And what he's saying here is, when God made promise to Abraham, it was not a mutually agreed upon thing. That's why when you actually notice the way God ratifies that covenant in Genesis 15 that is very precise that it's God who does the ratifying of the pro- of the covenant not Abraham it is God This is a unilateral promise whereby God graciously extends favor it is not contingent it is not conditioned It is a promise by God. That is important when we look at this word that is mentioned several times in this text. So God makes a promise to Abraham and to his offspring of an heir and a home. I would submit to you, there is a universal human longing for an heir, And for a home. We don't like being rootless. We don't like being drifters. That may work for a little while. It may work for a short period of our life. But we like to have a home. Going on a pack trip is a fun thing. I like to go on pack trips. But I like to come home. I like my home. There is a universal human longing for home and hearth. And for an heir. These are written by God on the human heart. And God promises to Abraham, I am going to give to you an heir. And I am going to give to you a home. Let's look at how this relates. Turn with me real quickly to the book of Hebrews. Go over to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. I didn't put this on the screen because I want you to look at this in your Bible. And then... In a few minutes, we're going to look at the passage that Keith read to us from Galatians chapter 3. These two passages that we reference briefly are very important when we think about this. Hebrews chapter 11 is a faith chapter. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. By it, the elders obtained a good report. You know what it's telling us there? In the Old Testament, all those that went before were saved by faith, not by works. By it, by faith, they obtained a good report report with God. And then he goes through a bunch of people of faith. Some of the people he mentions are pretty su- surprising to us. I mean, he talks about Jephthah. I mean, that guy, when you read it in the book of Judges, you would not think of him as a paragon of faith, or Samson even. But God looks at their faith. He looks at this big picture, not their works. But look at Abraham. And this I want to just reference real quickly when we think about this promise. In verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed. Important word. His faith prompted an obedience. And what was it that he obeyed? He was called to go out to a place and he went. And it was a place that he would later receive as an inheritance. And when he went, when he left, he didn't know where he was going. A lot of you ladies think that's true. Every time your husband gets behind the wheel, he doesn't know where he's going. That's why we have Google Maps now, and they don't even know where we're going. That must have been designed by a man. Did you see that on, in the Jackson Old Daily, that Google Maps was sending people that wanted to go to Yellowstone somewhere over by Driggs or somewhere out there in the hills, and they was missing the whole thing? Must have been designed by a man. Doesn't know where he's going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, and he lived in tents. He lived with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why? Notice this. This really relates to where we're going here in a minute. He was looking forward to something else. It was a polis. The city, the Greek word is polis. It doesn't just remind, it's not like, man, when we get to heaven, we got to go live in a big city. You ever talk about that? I don't like cities. I'm sorry. I like the country. (laughs) I don't want to live in New York. Too much coronavirus and all that stuff. No. When he says the word city there, he's not just talking about you're going to go live in town. The word is polis, city state. And that entails the whole thing. That's important when we look at this here in a few minutes, too, because we're going to talk about the eternal kingdom. He was looking forward to a city that has foundations and its designer and builder is God. And then it says in verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the things that were promised. They saw them afar off. They greeted them. They acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. They are seeking a homeland. Now, go back to Romans chapter 4 for a minute. And let's just consider these things in their proper order. The first one is an heir. He has promised an heir. Isaac was not ultimately that heir. We saw that in the book of Galatians. When Keith read to us the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 15, notice what it says. He says, brothers, I am using a human illustration here. No one sets aside or makes additions to even a human covenant that has been ratified. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, And then he makes an appeal that shows how precise inspiration and inerrancy really is. Notice this. When God made that promise, he did not say, And to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, to your seed, who is Christ. The heir is Christ. Isaac is the near fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment of the promise is the heir who is Christ. He is the heir of the world. Now, think of the rights of inheritance, how important these are. You know this. One of the planks of communism was to take away away the rights of inheritance, wasn't it? So everybody has to go back to point one. Think about that. Mom and dad die. Everything's confiscated. Boom. Back to point one. Kids got over. Back to point one. How absurd is that? How evil is that? Rights of inheritance are very important. Now, he tells us here that Christ is the heir. And then, We see this built throughout this promise. All who are in Christ are joint heirs with him. We will see that in Romans chapter 8. When he says in Romans chapter 8 that if you believe in Christ, you are an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. That is why Jesus says in John, when he's talking to his disciples, he says to them one day, he says, everything I have is yours. Man, that's a pretty good deal. Think about that for a minute. I'm not talking about name it and claim it, theology, and like, I just need a Lamborghini, go buy me one. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about this. Everything that Christ has is yours. His spirit is yours. The promise of the spirit is ours. Everything he has is yours. That's a pretty good deal. We are joining us with Christ. Now... What you notice here, and I want to just express this because I think it's important in the text. I'm reading from the ESV, and he says in verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring. In other translations, in the New King James and other translations, it uses the word seed, not offspring. I don't want to obsess with something, but I like the word seed much better, and I'm going to explain to you why. That actually is a Greek word, which means... Seed. It means seed. It, it speaks of seeds that are planted in the ground, like when you ladies plant a garden, or you farmers put in grain, or whatever the case. It's, it's the taking of a seed and putting it into the ground. It's used of the planting of botanical seeds, plant life. It's also used, this word is also used. For the human seed, the propagation of human life, naturally, generatively, as well as spiritually. Seed. Now, why is that word important? Think with this. Why didn't he just say, to your children? To your children. This promise is to your children. Now, there's some places that it's used that word, but in the text, specifically, when it relates to Genesis, it's this word, Seed Why is that used? The Holy Spirit is pointing to an important truth Here's what it is Seeds They begin in a very insignificant beginning Think about that You know, you go to the grocery store And you buy a little packet of seeds And you look at the seeds And it's nothing It's insignificant But in the seed Is life generating properties so that that seed then multiplies and brings out of itself fruit. Isn't that amazing? Every time I plant seeds, you know, when I, when I plant a a field of grain, my wife knows this, I'm a worry ward. I'm like, oh, it's just not going to come up. You know, I lay in bed worrying, is it going to come up? I spent all this money for seed. Did I water it enough? Did I water it too much? And it always comes up. It just comes up. Why? Because there's life in that seed. And put in the right situation where there's water and sunlight. And you always want you know, how does the seed, you know, hydrotropism and geotropism and all this, why does it grow up and not down? Why do the roots go down and the plank? How do you, did you get it in there the right side up? You don't have to worry about it, do you? You just throw it in the ground. It's insignificant. It's nothing. And Jesus said this of himself. Think of this. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, dies, this is why seed is important. What did Jesus do? He fell into the ground, he died, and his death brought life. Unless that kernel of wheat Falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But when it falls into the ground and dies, it brings forth much fruit. That's why seed is important here. So he has promised an heir. Second thing, let's close with this. Let's bring it to a f- fulfillment. He has promised to us a home. A home. Now notice this. This is really rich. So don't lose me yet. Stay with me to this point. Notice what he says in this Verse. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the promised land. Is that what it says? What does it say? What did God promise to Abraham? Was it just from the river Euphrates to the river of Egypt and from the great sea to the river Jordan? Boom, boom, boom. What did he promise to Abraham? The cosmos. That's the Greek word cosmos. Now, that can refer to this planet. It can also refer to the entire universe that God created. The cosmos. What I want us to think about here is, when God promised to Abraham, there was a near fulfillment of that through Moses to the Jewish people of a promised land. Small, confined armpit of the world. Right? Stinky place. God promised it to them. But there is an expansion of that in Christ to not just that little thing, where Christ ultimately will rule during the Millennial Kingdom. We're not going to dish that. That's there. He's going to rule and reign on the throne of his father David. And he's going to fulfill the kingdom age. But he expands this promise to all the offspring, that's you and I, of Abraham who are in Abraham's faith and in Christ. He expands it to the whole thing. All that is mine is yours. That's the cosmos. And it's yours. There's a joint heir in Aaron Christ. That's a big deal let's think about heaven for a minute let's think about the eternal state there's so much in scripture that talks about this and sometimes it is so difficult to put it all together to where we can really grasp it and, and it's kind of like you know when somebody comes back from Hawaii and they were in Hawaii and they tell you what Hawaii is like you sit there and they're a like, oh, big deal because I've never been there Then you go there and he's like, oh, that's pretty nice. Well, it's kind of like that sometimes when we read the Bible, you you haven't been there. And it's hard to really envision what this is like. But let's think about the reality. God made us for heaven to be inhabitants of the cosmos with him for eternity. Putting that all together, Second Peter chapter 3 looks like a new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. This one is destroyed by fire. This cosmos, the world that now is, is destroyed by fire. A new one is created. A new one is brought in. He takes the old one, it says in the book of Hebrews, and just like a dirty garment, he wads it up and he throws it in the basket and he gets out a new one. New heaven and new earth. In which dwells righteousness. Lion and the lamb lay down together. The child picks up an adder and plays with it. Ah, man. I want to ride a zebra. i like to ride a horse. I think it'd be cool to ride a zebra. You know? I, what a life this is going to be. Sometime, you know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus said... Those words to us. And then Paul says in the book of Colossians set your mind, set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. These things rot and rust and decay, they don't. No sin. No suffering. No getting out of bed and having to stretch. No death. I hate death. I've buried many people from this church. I long to see them again. I know where they're at. I don't doubt that, but I still hate death. It is an enemy that will be defeated it is defeated in Christ, and ultimately it will be destroyed when he returns. No more tears. No more sorrow. Sounds pretty good. Set your mind on that. Home is heaven, home is heaven. We should meditate on these things. I was reading uh, some thoughts by a guy named Samuel Rutherford. He was an old Puritan. He said this. He related it to Abraham. And he was thinking about heaven. He said, we should much and often solace ourselves with a meditation hereof. Abstracting our minds from this world. And as in Genesis, um, this is in Roman numerals, so I've got to put this in my mind. 1517. Uh, when the Lord made a promise to Abraham of the land of Canaan, he bid him to arise and walk through the land in its length and its breadth. So seeing God has promised you and I heaven, though we be not in actual possession of it yet, we should arise often and walk through this land. Meditate and think of the surpassing glory of, And the excellence of this place. Samuel Rutherford was an old Puritan, 1600 guy. Mercy Me is a 21st, 21st century Christian music group. You've probably heard their song, Almost Home. Are you disappointed? Are you desperate for help? You know what it's like to be tired and only a shell of yourself. will you start to believe you don't have what it takes because it's all you can do just to move, much less finish the race. But don't forget what lies ahead. Almost home. Brother, it won't be long Soon all your burdens will be gone. With all your strength, sister, run wild, run free. Hold up your head, keep pressing on. We're almost home. Well, this road will be hard, but we win in the end simply because of Jesus and us. It's not if, but when. So take joy in the journey, even when it feels long. Oh, find strength in each step, knowing that heaven is cheering you on. We're almost home. Brother, it won't be long. Soon all your burdens will be gone. With all your strength, sister, run wild, run free, hold up your head, keep pressing on. We're almost home. Listen. Jesus is the heir who will bring you to your eternal home let's pray Lord we thank you we your children praise you that Lord you came as a seed to die to be buried to bring us to glory Lord, you tell us in your word, you you told your disciples, let now your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and get you. So where I am, there you can be too. And then Lord, you said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, the life no one comes to the father's house but by me lord may we see that it's not in works it's not in ritual it's not in law it is in christ and christ alone and may we rest our hope on the grace that is brought to be brought to us at the bringing the coming of Christ. Dismiss us with your love as we sing, as we worship you in song. So we pray in Jesus' name. Dear this